Hello, and welcome to The Maine Question, the official podcast of the University of Maine, where we explore some of today's biggest questions with UMaine researchers, innovators, and changemakers. I'm your host, Ron Lesnet. In this episode, we'll delve into what is perhaps the most personal and profound decision an individual, a couple, or a family can make, the choice on whether to have children or not. It's a decision that is life-changing on a personal level, of course, but it also ripples out into communities, into our politics, immigration, tax issues, workforce development, among other areas. How and why does someone make the choice to be child-free? How does that choice affect how a person is viewed by their family, their community, and by themselves? UMaine professor of sociology Amy Blackstone, who also works with the Margaret Chase Smith Center for Public Policy, has pondered these questions on both a personal level and in her work, which has led to many interviews across the United States and Canada, and a book on the subject. She poses the main question for our discussion. Who makes the choice to be child-free? Why do they make that choice? And what does it mean for us all? Welcome, and we, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. Thank you. I imagine you get a range of reactions from people when they talk to you about this. Uh, what are the, some of the responses you've gotten? Is there one reaction that's the most common? I don't know that there's one reaction that's that's the most common, but some of the more common kinds of reactions include, oh, isn't that a selfish choice? Uh, are you worried about what will happen to you when you're older? Um, you might die alone. And then sometimes there are funny responses like, oh, I wish I had made that choice myself <laughs> or good for you. I mean, occasionally there is the positive, that's great, happy you've, you're living the life that you've chosen for yourself. Um, but often it's a response uh, either that is expressing concern or confusion. Um, and I think that's that's normal in a, in a society like ours where the expectation is that everybody will become a parent at some point. What's the balance, uh, negative and positive reactions? That, that's a really great question. I think that uh, if I had to categorize the, the questions that I get and other child-free people I know get, I would say more often it's, I guess, questions that would be categorized as negative, and they're not always framed as as judgy, although sometimes they are. Sometimes it's framed as concern about the person who's made that choice and their future. Uh, but I still would put those the 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 concerned kinds of questions in the category of negative. Um, probably seventy five twenty five off the top of my head. So certainly more concern and negative response than there is positive response. So take us back to some points in your life when you thought about or, or maybe even struggled with this decision. Did that evolve as you grew and entered various phases of adulthood? It did definitely evolve. I mean, I was very clear as a child and as a teenager that I would become a mother one day. Um, if you asked 12-year-old Amy about her plans for motherhood, I would have told you that I was going to have three children. I would start at age 20, and I had chosen age 20 because I felt like all of my friends' moms who were the coolest were the youngest moms, <laughs> and I wanted to be a cool mom. Um, thank goodness I wasn't on the hook to, to live out that plan <laughs> because I think 20 would have been difficult. And over time, I did start to change my mind. But again, it wasn't until later for me. So in my teen years, 
Uh, I babysat pretty regularly. I actually became a certified babysitter when I was 11 years old. I enrolled myself in a babysitter certification course because I knew I wanted to do that work. And I nannied throughout college. I was a nanny to my nephew when I was a grad student. So I really did prepare myself quite well for the role of mother. And it wasn't until probably my late 20s into my mid 30s when I started to think, you know, I, I like my life like it is right now. And, and maybe I don't need to become a mother. What are the trends in this movement? Is it a growing movement? And I imagine there's a a split between people who choose voluntarily not to have children and those who have the decision sort of made for them, whether it's medically or some other reason. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll address that first, that second part first. Um, There is a difference between, especially important for researchers, between people who have made the conscious choice not to become parents and people who aren't parents but want to be and never become parents for any number of reasons. It could be medical. It could be they don't find a partner that they want to parent with, so circumstantial. Um, So as a researcher, I refer to those two groups as child-free. Those are the folks who've made the choice not to become parents and childless, people who wanted to become parents but didn't or couldn't for any number of reasons. There's some controversy in child-free communities about that term. Not everybody who's opted out of parenthood likes the term child-free. And certainly those of us who do choose to use it get some flack for it because of the emphasis on on the free part. Um, One writer who I very much admire who has opted out of parenthood herself and has written about this choice, Megan Daum, doesn't use the term child-free. And she uh, says in one of her books that um, using child-free is sort of like uh, the same as using smoke-free or gluten-free. And the implication then is, you know, smoke-free means smoke is bad and and we don't want smoke. Same with gluten. Um, So the implication being that we want the world to be free of children. Um, My response to that is that The fact that that's even a question, I think, um, tells us a lot about what we think of people who identify as child-free, and we can get more into what they think about kids uh, later, but I, I, so I use the term child-free to refer to people who have opted out of parenthood. And then in, in response to the first part of your question about whether this is a movement and whether it's growing, um... There's a great op-ed that actually just came out in the Washington Post uh, that makes the very good point that childlessness is nothing new. People have been not parents for as long as we've had people, and that's a point that I make in my book as well. Um, I think that what's new is that we are talking, increasingly talking about parenthood as a choice. Um, So in you know, a hundred years ago, yeah, we had priests and we had nuns and we had people who um, found ways, you know, to use contraception to prevent pregnancy. So of course, people have always been regulating their reproduction. Um, But I think more than any other time in the past today, we're recognizing, um, again, that parenthood is a choice and some people can choose to opt out of it and that they can still live full and fulfilling lives having made that choice. Of the people that choose uh, or that don't have children, I should say, what's the balance between those who make the choice voluntarily and those uh, who who have the choice made for them for one reason or another? Is there a number there? That's a really good question. Um, 
the the short answer is we don't know. Um, there's some research that suggests it's about 50% of people who don't have kids have made that choice. Uh, but I know of other researchers who suggest that maybe it's closer to 10 or 20% who've opted out of parenthood consciously. Um, we don't have really good data on that question. So I, I think it's still an open question. How do you handle or how do people handle the pressure from parents, from grandparents, other family members who sometimes want uh, this person that they're talking to to have kids, maybe obviously in, in some cases more than the person themselves? There are a variety of strategies that different child-free people use. And I will say that one of the great things about the fact that we are more openly discussing this choice is that there are more options for people to find support if they're either struggling with their choice or they are looking for a community of people who share their experience as child-free. There are a plethora of Facebook groups, of blogs, um, and all kinds of meetup groups around the country of child-free people. So there are ways to get support from people who share your experience and have made your choice. Uh, in terms of of working with or, or, or talking with people who, who don't support your choice. Um, I'm going to put a plug in for my book, actually. I've, I've gotten a lot of emails since my book came out from people who are child-free and have shared the book with their parents or their siblings or friends who didn't understand their choice and who felt like the book helped them understand it. So I think talking um, with people honestly about why you've made the choice, it's hard sometimes to do that because if, if you're feeling like you're getting pushed back to a choice that you've made for yourself, it can be easy to respond flippantly um, or defensively. And, you know, honestly, I've done that myself. I know many child-free people who have uh, because we just want to be understood and respected for our choice. But I think if we can take a breath and actually have a real conversation with our family or friends who might be concerned or not understand our choice, I think that's, that's the best path. And, and sometimes I imagine many of the family members' reactions are, what is wrong with you? What, there's something right. wrong. Right. What is wrong with you, but also what is wrong with me? So I've heard this from a, a number of the folks that I interviewed, that their, their parents worried that they might have done something wrong in raising their child wow. to raise them to not want kids. And, you know, that it, it took me a while to to sort of <laughs> come to understand this. But I, I get that, again, because we live in a world where the assumption is that normal, quote, quote unquote, normal adults um, all aspire to become parents, we might think that we did something wrong in our parenting if we rear a kid who ends up not wanting to be one themselves. And I, I think this is another reason that it's really important to have honest conversations with people who who genuinely want to understand your choice. Um, as I say in the book, the choice not to have kids very often has very little to do with others. And it's about the choice. It's about the life that we envision for ourselves. It's about the life that we want for ourselves. So it's less about what someone else did to me or how somebody raised me. Maybe let's, let's talk about some of the bigger forces at work here. Uh, one is uh certainly overpopulation, you know, planet-wide. I mean, we're on the way to, what, 10, 9, 10 billion people. But then in certain places, Maine being one of them, uh, you know, there's perhaps a lack of young people. Maine is the oldest state in the country and needs for workforce and, and all those kinds of things uh, enter into it as well. So mm -hmm. how does that topic, overpopulation, enter into this? 
Well, it, it definitely is relevant and becoming more and more so as we have presidential candidates talking about overpopulation and about reproduction. I think more and more of us are thinking and talking about this. So a couple of points. One, we're not in any danger of uh, losing humans on this planet, at least so far. Uh, with the, the, the global population is growing rapidly and most would say at a at a rate that's not sustainable over time. So I don't think we have to worry about humans dying out as a, as a race at this point at least. Um, but I do recognize that we have places like Maine um, and many nations in Western Europe, for example, whose populations have declined. And uh, those states and nations understandably are concerned about that. I think we have a great solution right at our door that we're talking about all the time, but maybe not in the way that I would prefer, and that is immigration. Um, so we've got plenty of people on this planet, and we have lots of people who are looking for homes <laughs> and looking for jobs and looking to be welcomed, uh, to use a main term, lots of people from away who would love to, to be here. And I think that if we put our focus on finding ways to welcome those people, um, finding ways to, to include them in our culture culture and our society, we'd all be better off. And it's sort of proportionality. I mean, right. there's too many in some places, not enough in others. And yes. finding where that ebb and flow works is, is part of this puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that I'll just put one more plug in for my, I don't think the right solution is to pressure people who have said they don't want to become parents to do so. That's not going to solve the problem. Right. <laughs> I know you talked about this in, in some other places that you've uh, you've discussed this topic, the lack of capability in many cases to take care of the children that are here. Yeah, I mean, that's another uh, issue to think about. So if, I, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the arguments I sometimes hear in favor of encouraging people to have children, even if they aren't sure they want them, uh, is is centered around children. Don't you love children? Don't you care about children? Um, you know, do this for the good of children. And I also think that that's a misplaced argument because if we look at children's well-being, I think there are lots of examples where we could and should be treating children much better than we do. Um, I don't have the numbers at, at my fingertips right now, but I know that there are too many children going hungry, even in the United States, um, and children that are being overlooked in terms of uh, living in abusive homes and not being cared for. Um, let's put our energy toward caring for the children that are here and maybe even doing a better job of it before we worry about creating more. You, you talk about um, the factor of being child-free, like you said, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't like children and that many people who are child-free um, choose to work with children in their professions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one woman that I interviewed talked about uh, working at, I think she was working at a JCPenney's during college. And she, at that point in her life, she was certain that she would become a mother one day. And over time, watching parents and um, and their children interact with each other at JCPenney's, that single thing changed her mind about having kids. Because what she said to me was, I saw so many parents who were impatient with their children or yanking them around or sometimes even hitting them. And um, it, she wasn't trying to disparage the parents who, you know, you, you don't know their story. But what she said was, it made me realize that kids need 
other adults in their lives who aren't their parents to make a difference for them. They need love from other adults in addition to their parents. And so she became motivated to work as a camp counselor. And she's done this. She was in her 50s when I interviewed her. Her whole career has been in working at camps for kids. She's now a camp director. And she never had children. But she dedicated her life and her career really to making a difference in kids' lives. And that's just one of many stories that I heard in my interviews of folks who knew that they wanted to participate in helping to rear the next generation in some way, Um, wanted to make a difference in kids' lives, wanted to advocate for kids, um, but felt that they would be best equipped to do that by not having children of their own. And this person probably positively affected not two or three kids of her own, but perhaps hundreds. I I imagine so, yeah. And we talked about overpopulation. How about other... um, sort of big picture uh, issues like climate change or environmental concerns. Uh, How does that uh, factor into this? Well, I think that's linked. I mean, so if you look at the carbon footprint of new babies that are born in the United States, for example, uh, where we have a relatively low birth rate, uh, one baby born in the United States is going to have a much greater impact on the environment over time than a baby born in, I don't know, any any African nation, for example. Um, so I think when we talk about overpopulation um, and about fertility rates and whether they're too high or too low, uh, we also have to look at what the impact of new humans will be. And we know that uh, here where we have pretty high consumption patterns, that our impact is much greater. So I think that also needs to be part of the conversation. The changing nature of families or the changing definition. I mean, we always think of the nuclear family, mom, dad, boy and girl, 2.3 kids or whatever it (laughs) happens to be. But now there's a lot more definitions of family that are um, considered legitimate. Uh, Even uh, TV shows, The Golden Girls comes to mind. So there's more, there's many types of families out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I I can't tell you how happy I am that we're beginning to realize that family, it doesn't have to be limited to mom, dad, 2.4 kids and a dog. Um, And that's actually an an issue that I address in my book is the way that child-free people form family. Um, If you look at the the functions that families fulfill in our society. And this is one thing that sociologists of the family do. We know that families provide a home for their members, that they provide emotional support and companionship for members, that they provide economically for their members. And child-free families, child-free households do those things for each other. So I argue in the book that we should think of them as families. And one counterpoint to that might be, well, we also think of families as engaging in this thing called reproduction. But um, reproduction, if you look at it from a sociological point of view, really consists of two kinds of things. One is is biological reproduction, which of course Uh, child-free families don't do. Um, But sociologists also talk about something called social reproduction, which is all the kinds of things that we do in our communities to help prepare children for adulthood, to help rear the next generation. And as we've just discussed, um, child-free people do 
play important roles in children's lives. So some of them are teachers, they're social workers, they're pediatricians, they're police officers, and all of those people in their roles do help teach children our values, our norms, our rules as a society, um, help rear them in a variety of ways. So child-free families even contribute to this idea of social reproduction. Being a cool aunt or uncle is not a bad gig either, right? Absolutely not, no. (laughs) It's pretty fun. (laughs) Another trend seems to be that a lot of people or families treat their pets as children almost. Is that yeah. how, how, is that sort of how this has evolved a little bit too? Well, so I do know from my own research that pets do play an important role in the in the families of many child free people. It's not true for everyone. Um, and personally, I have to say that so the term that gets floated a lot is fur babies or fur kids. It's not one that resonates for me, and I happen to be child-free, and I think of my household as a family, but um, I know that many child-free people do think of their pets in that way, but even that is not limited to child-free people. So if you look at spending patterns, for example, on um, pets, households that don't have kids in them spend way more than any other household on pets, but that includes empty nesters. Um, so it's not just child-free people, I think, who think of their, of their pets as their children sometimes. So where do you see this trending? And, and where is your work in this area going to take you, do you think? Well, one thing that I'm really interested in and that I talk about in one chapter of the book is how people without children think about and plan for old age. Um, and I, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a month or so ago about the Golden Girls model of living, and that's certainly one option that many of the child-free people that I interviewed talk about. There are all kinds of other creative ways of aging that don't um, assume that biological or adopted children will be there to care for you. And this applies to parents as well. I think the question of how we age is one that we all need to be asking ourselves. So one of the things I write about in the book is models where um, housing complexes where people of all generations live together and younger people can help the older people in those complexes with things like bringing groceries up to their apartment or or shopping. Um, the, another model is, you know, a group of friends buying a house together and living together like the Golden Girls. Um, there's also a model where Older folks are providing a home for younger folks who financially aren't able to provide housing for themselves, but are able to do things like help with yard work or, again, do the grocery shopping or or help with cooking. Um, So I think there are all kinds of really creative ways that people are already discovering about how to age well, how to age in place, how to age in their communities. And I'd love to explore um, some of those models for aging. Um, I'm also really interested in how the child-free community understands itself as a community or whether they do. So I use the word movement in my book, but it's not a word that I came to easily. When I first started studying the child-free choice in 2008, I was pretty adamant that this is not a movement. We are not a social movement because I thought we don't have enough in common. It's like saying parenthood is a social movement. Um, Parents are a diverse group. (laughs) And one thing they have in common is that they're parents. Same for child-free. We're all kinds of people. And um, it's true that we made the choice not to have children. Um, But 
beyond that, there there is not a lot that we have in common. Uh, that's what I argued early on. But as I got into this work, I realized, you know, actually, there are some things around which we can coalesce as a group. For example, um, rethinking how we think about work-life balance. Uh, today, often when we hear that term and, and we think about the life part of that equation, we assume that means children. Uh, and I think that child-free people are um, beginning to be vocal about the reality that, hey, I have a life too. Um, I need and deserve balance with work. Uh, so I think there are issues like that that, that child-free people are beginning to coalesce around. So maybe it is a movement. For people who are contemplating this decision, what, 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 would, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them how to handle feedback, whether it's positive or negative, from, from other folks? Well, I would say to, to all people, whether they're contemplating the decision not to have kids or contemplating the decision to have them, to do your homework. We have all kinds of resources available to us today um, that help people understand what some of the consequences of their choice might be, um, can help people envision a life for themselves. There are really some great uh, autobiographies or memoirs of child-free people. One I'll recommend is by Marsha Drutt Davis, a child-free woman who's now in her 70s. And her memoir, Confessions of a Child-Free Woman, I think is really great for thinking about uh, the life course as a child-free person. I'll plug my own book again, and there's all kinds of books on on parenthood. So, so do your homework. Right. <laughs> um, talk to folks in your life who've made, you know, who've gone either path, and and find out from them what their lives are like, um, how they feel about their choice. And I I think that the more open we can be, again, about the reality that parenthood is a choice. Uh, children, I think, deserve to be wanted, <laughs> deserve to have parents who are committed to that role. Uh, I think the more we can be honest with about that and talk about that openly, the more we'll have people making the choice that's right for them. Well, we're interested to see where your work goes, and, and thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You can find this in all of our podcasts in many of the places that podcasts are available. We welcome your feedback on this show and on our series. Drop us a line at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.